Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 226. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Gabe Bryson Treesice. Good day, Kip. Thanks for having me back on the program. Of course, it's always a pleasure. And today, we're going to be talking about the plight of rural America, and more specifically, the larger response from a political, economic, and I would say cultural perspective. And to begin, I think it would be particularly helpful if we tackled one of several articles you sent to me, J.D. Vance, The False Prophet of Blue America, published in the New Republic on November 17th, 2016, by Sarah Jones, who grew up in Appalachia. And this article is essentially a response to Vance and his best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy. Yes, Kip, I thought this was a sensible place to start because Hillbilly Elegy topped the nonfiction bestseller lists after it came out, and it's been reviewed, talked about extensively in the media. And Sarah Jones's piece is interesting because she comes from a similar background. She grew up in Appalachia. She would probably agree with many of Vance's diagnoses of the problems plaguing the region, but she comes to different conclusions about possible solutions to those problems. A few quotes I'll give you. These are from Vance. He says, We spend our way to the poor house. Thrift is inimical to our being. Those are exemplary of his overall take that the people of Appalachia are largely to blame for their poverty. Jones, on the other hand, argues that their problems are largely external due to overaggressive marketing of mortgages, credit cards, other financial products that saddle them with debt that keep them from entering the elusive American middle class. She says as well, Unlike Vance, I look at my home and see a region abandoned by the government elected to serve it. She mentions going to high school, not having enough textbooks, lacking other resources essential to grow and become an independent, contributing member of society. And I think Appalachia, like other parts of rural America, suffers from brain drain, from the young people leaving to seek education, to seek meaningful work, and a lack of jobs. People who want to work may not be able to. They may not be able to make a living in their hometown. That was something that came up in another of the articles I sent you called The Labor of Bringing a Baby into Appalachia, which I'd love to delve into later. But for now, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this article, as well as more generally how you conceive of rural America, if you think it's worth drawing a distinction between rural and urban America, if you think that's even possible, and what ends that exercise might serve. I definitely feel the comparison warrants some time. It's worth noting, as some listeners may not know, that I grew up in suburbia, and at that, a rather wealthy one that didn't have to worry about many things. And these articles also touched on concepts like food deserts, which Caroline and I covered on this show years ago, and that was the first time I had heard the term, because I never had to worry about that growing up. Reading a lot of these articles and thinking about rural America, and especially its struggles, is challenging, valuable, and I think temptingly simple, if I'm not rigorous with myself and careful about my understanding or appraisal of an entire section of a country I've really never traveled to. And to me, that's a big issue with our cultural unity as a country. There's a reason we've heard of the term flyover states, and frankly, except for our education in Ohio, Gabe, I hadn't really done much traveling through or to the Midwest, 
And I think that says something about the desirability of those locations, of those towns. And while that may not always have a direct economic effect, I wouldn't be surprised if that philosophy filtered into the self-perceptions, the confidence of the people living in rural America, that they aren't a desired destination for tourists or other travelers, and that they don't compare to the bustle of more urban or concentrated areas which I'd like to come back to at some point, this concept of hyperactivity. And to answer your question, in my mind, the definition of rural America is a rather desolate and barren one, and I hope listeners will correct me if they disagree, or at the very least, share their perspective, because again, I'm one person, and I've done so little traveling within our country or even our larger world that I don't feel I fully understand, and I'm well aware of that. But when I picture rural America... I envision large fields used for crops, relatively low wealth, a lot of families that are close-knit, perhaps more so by necessity than by interest because of economic circumstances, and I picture a religious route to a community, often a Christian one. Again, I would use the words by necessity because in lonely, quiet, or underpopulated areas, the human need for community still persists. And to me, it makes sense that religious organizations or institutions would often take that role. Now, as to my opinions on the article responding to Vance, I had a lot of thoughts and highly encourage listeners to read it. It may have been my favorite of all the articles you sent me. For me, one of the most striking remarks came when Jones said, quote, If you were born where I grew up, you have to travel hundreds of miles to find a prosperous America. How do you get off the dole when there's not enough work to go around? Frequently, you don't. And I find that quotation so powerful because, to reference an oft-said human adage, out of sight, out of mind, I think the distance between many people outside of rural America and rural America itself contributes to some of the apathy, or at least incomplete solutions, or poorly conceived ideas that might help those living in rural America. And for those who are not rural, who might be able to help those who are, if you live very far from those in need, you don't know what their lifestyles are like, and frankly, you might not know what help would look like if you wanted to send aid to them in any number of forms, then there is a certain gridlock there. I don't think you can help people you don't fully understand, and in my mind when I picture economic downturn or other difficulties, I can imagine that, for a lot of cultures built around pride, especially pride in one's own hard work, that a handout might feel like a slap in the face. And so I think economic or other solutions would require not only a great deal of thought, but empathy that can only be born out of legitimate listening, asking of questions, and a desire to understand, which would first require that the aforementioned distance be traveled by someone or some organization or a community of concerned individuals, perhaps American individuals. Now, Kip, I don't know if the distance you refer to is physical or metaphorical. I think it works either way because there is, it seems, a gulf between rural America and suburbia, urban America. Take your pick. And I think it's important that those not in rural America try to understand the difficulties those who are face. One of the articles I sent you from Bloomberg Businessweek is about Dollar General, the biggest dollar store chain in the country. One quote from the article really struck me, and it appeared to strike the editor too because they used it as a pull quote. It's from a real estate analyst named Garrick Brown, 
who said that essentially what the dollar stores are betting on in a large way is that we are going to have a permanent underclass in America. It's based on the concept that the jobs went away and the jobs are never coming back and that things aren't going to get better in any of these places. And that underscores the difficulty of finding jobs, which Sarah Jones highlighted, which you mentioned. And it seems to me that's at the heart of the economic difficulties that people in large swaths of rural America face. It's not that they lack the will to work. It's not that they want to live off of government welfare. It's that they have little choice but to. And I think in talking about these problems, we would be remiss in not addressing the fact that that jobs have deserted a lot of these areas. Kip, you mentioned that we spent a few years together in central Ohio attending Kenyon College, and that's part of the Rust Belt, a region that historically depended on manufacturing and other industrial work. And I think if you asked a lot of people who live there, they'd say that was the height of this town. That was our golden age. And now it's past. The jobs have gone overseas or they've been automated and we're left holding the bag. And so in thinking about problems rural America faces, I think we have a duty to examine all the forces generating those problems. Some of them may be cultural I'm willing to concede the point, as Alicia Swayze makes in the Splinter article I sent you, that an unwillingness to use birth control or get vasectomies contributes to overly high teen pregnancy rates in Appalachia. Yes, that's a problem that could be easily ameliorated. But some of these problems are more complex and more intractable than we would like to think. And with that nod to Swayze's article, I think it's a great opportunity to dig deeper because there were various moments she captured that really caught my attention and still sit with me. Early on in the article, there's an anecdote of a woman who's about to go into labor who is asked if the baby's father will be there for the birth. She laughs, rolls her eyes, and says, he might stop by later. I really don't know. And Swayze goes on to say, Grant County women, like Brittany Walters, don't rely on men because a lot of guys don't stick around after they've fathered a child. And to your comment about vasectomies, Swayze also says at one point, No one ever mentions that men can take responsibility for birth control. Nurses list condoms as one of many birth control choices, but few patients request them or more permanent remedies. And Swayze goes on to say that vasectomies are seen as unmanly. And while many current thinkers, authors, and cultural analysts have referred to a crisis of masculinity in the 21st century, it to me makes sense that given that larger cultural moment, which is occurring I think nationally for us, but also globally, that in a very specific region or regions of our country, there are additional symptoms attendant to the reality of being a man. And to take that a step further, it makes sense that in Swayze's article, she refers to the fact that women have become the economic backbone in many of these circumstances, raising kids on their own, managing multiple jobs just to get by, and relying on others, often other women in their families and communities, for help with childcare. And I'm not omniscient enough to know this comparison, but in my suburban and urban experiences, the people and the communities in which I've been raised split all kinds of responsibilities far more evenly. And so that was a really striking factor to read about, and one with which I'm not particularly familiar. And there's one quotation from an obstetrician named John Hahn that I think gets at this division in a really profound way. He said, quote, Women get depressed and get antidepressants. 
When men get depressed, we give them funerals. I'm glad you cited that quote, Kip. I was going to bring it up too. I think it shows that there are consequences to Appalachia's economic malaise beyond lower incomes. When there's a lack of jobs, people tend to be more depressed. It affects family dynamics as well. Swayze mentions that 90% of the mothers in Grant County, which is where her article is set, are unmarried, and that's largely by choice. She says the mothers generally find it easier to navigate social services when they're single. And I would expect that phenomenon to interest those who preach the importance of nuclear families. A lot of evangelical Christians in this country say the decline of the family is responsible for society's decline. But in this case, society is forcing these women to make choices that deprioritize family life. They're making economic choices that, for better or for worse, exclude traditional family models. Another factor here, of course, is deadbeat dads. They exist everywhere. They exist in Appalachia. But there's also the fact that fathers need to travel farther afield for work to make enough money to support their partners and their children. It's not always their fault that they're absent. But I think you're right to raise this question of gender dynamics in Appalachia. The problem, as Swayze defines it, is practically non-existent sex education. Kids don't get the kind of information and support they need to make responsible decisions regarding their sexual health, family planning, and her story makes Han, the obstetrician, out to be a hero. And I don't think that's overstating it. Here's this guy working in rural Appalachia for little money and no fame, but he knows the work he's doing is important. She says that he sometimes takes vegetables from families in lieu of payment for delivering babies, because a lot of these families don't have the means to pay him what he would garner in a more urban setting. It's a complicated story because he's clearly invested in the health and well-being of his community, but there are some forces beyond his control. He says after this lady Brittany has her fifth child, we'll see you next year for your sixth. And she says, oh no, this is my last one. But it's telling that he expects mothers to keep having babies because he knows that virtually no one in Grant County uses condoms, uses other forms of birth control. And he says he doesn't perform abortions either. He says two wrongs don't make a right. And that's why it's a thorny issue for me because he clearly cares about the plight of these people. But there's only so much he can do. And he says nobody in their right mind would come work here. He throws an expletive in there too, but I'll leave that to your imaginations. And I think he's right. It's a forsaken part of the country in a lot of ways. And that's why I think Swayze's article is so valuable. It gives us insight into a place and a people that we might otherwise have no knowledge of. You touched on the issue of childcare before and how a lot of women in Appalachia form these networks to care for newborn children. That, too, is a product of the lack of social services in the region. Swayze points out that Grant County does not have adequate child care facilities, and rural areas in general have fewer daycare options, less developed public transportation systems to get mothers or fathers to the daycare centers to drop off their young children. And this requires makeshift solutions, leaving a kid off with an aunt or a grandmother when you go to work, and those of us who live in suburbia or in a city may take for granted the availability of high-quality childcare. But there's a different America where that's largely non-existent and people have to find other ways to make do. And to conclude, I want to touch on this idea of forgotten America. 
and what happens to things we forget. Let's say childhood memories in our attic or hobbies that once gave us joy. To me, there's an undertone of inactivity. And what I've observed in my relatively short life is that a powerful form of depression takes root in a life or lives or even overall a culture when there's not movement and momentum. In my own life, I've noticed how much happier I feel when I'm busier, not necessarily with busy work. And of course, mine is one anecdotal example, but I've heard many that suggest a general need within a human being to be doing things. And to the issue of addiction, which we haven't touched much upon, which I think runs through America, to me, though there are of course many factors, as is true of anything complex, I do wonder if activity, in any number of senses, might help relieve some of the stress present in rural America, and frankly elsewhere, and if it might not also reinvigorate an area of the country that, as you and I have described, feels somewhat stagnant and lost and certainly concerned about its future, if not altogether hopeless. And I had the interesting thought as I'm processing this idea of activity, that while I'm often really critical of America's entertainment complex, and how thoroughly it seems we engage in passive or minimally active forms of entertainment, where we sit simply to enjoy, listen, etc., I think that's a rather cynical view of mine that I should confront more often, because at the very least, it keeps the emotional heart active, and in many cases, such as podcasts and literature, even some cinema and television, there's storytelling there. There's a way to pass one's time that can be seen as productive in some senses. And at a bare minimum, in an urban area with millions compared to rural towns of hundreds, a great form of entertainment is socializing, meeting new people, going to social gatherings where you may not know a lot of people. I think that comparison is really illustrative of the hope and hopelessness attendant to urban and rural areas respectively. How much hope might you have in the dating scene, for example, if you know that there are hundreds of thousands of people in your area you've never met compared to a town where you know all of the dating prospects? I don't know that I'm proposing a mass exodus or evacuation of rural areas, but I do think the lack of activity, economic and otherwise, might be the fundamental bedrock of the issue that there's simply not a lot to do. And where does one's mind wander? Perhaps their wallet and family security as well, when there really isn't much going on. I think you're right to identify desperation as a leading cause of drug use and drug-related deaths. And West Virginia, where Grant County is, leads the U.S. in drug-related deaths. I want to bring in the final article I sent you from the Washington Post, which is about Appalachian cooking culture, which, yes, is a thing. And the article starts off with a quote from Chef Travis Milton, who says, It's way easier to get drugs than a good greasy bean. A greasy bean being one of the Appalachian staples, along with dishes like vinegar pie, smoked venison, and leather breeches. And I think this article is a good one to end the podcast on, because in Milton's eyes, cooking and cuisine represents an opportunity for economic revival in Appalachia. For him and for other chefs active in the region, the long and rich history of Appalachian cuisine represents an opportunity to appeal to the wider world, both to bring Appalachia to the suburbanites, the urbanites who may have written it off, and in turn to bring more prosperity to Appalachia, which is something I hope we can all agree it could use. 
But one other thing I'd like to say is that the U.S. as a whole is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And that prosperity should inform the way we regard poverty-stricken areas within the country. Recently, Phil Alston, who's an Australian lawyer and the UN's special rapporteur on poverty, visited rural Lowndes County, Alabama, where half of all homes lack septic systems. He went to document and report on the extreme poverty in that area, which exists along color lines for the most part. Even in 2018, the white part of town has stronger, more modern infrastructure than the black part of town, and Alston spends most of his time visiting developing countries. But he felt it worthwhile to spend some time in Lowndes County, Alabama, because the poverty there, in the wealthiest country in the world, was so severe. So as we conclude this episode, Kip, I would be interested to know how you'd propose addressing the great wealth and income inequality in this country. And if you have any ideas for sparking economic growth in depressed areas, both economically and emotionally, such as Appalachia. Well, I should note on that very important question that I'm neither a human savior nor economic expert. But one of the first thoughts which rises in my mind is that old quotation about teaching a man to fish. And for me, it's a powerful idea that investing in people, giving them a sense of self, or perhaps reinvigorating a lost sense of confidence is one way to teach the trees to grow, if you will. Not to introduce something that's never been there before, but to call upon something human and universal. As you said earlier, it's not that individuals in rural America don't want to work or that they lack the will, but the opportunities. And so in my mind, making it easier to leave rural America if individuals are interested, allowing them opportunities to find paths for themselves, offering education that is substantial, thorough, and affordable. And on the addiction point, investing in social activities that invigorate a sense of fulfillment and connection. I'm sure a lot of this sounds lofty and idealistic, but to reference another earlier episode on addiction, I firmly believe that its opposite is not necessarily sobriety, but connection and relationships. Maybe one antidote to Appalachia's ills is that of emotional vulnerability, learning to be emotionally and socially intimate with people you might believe you already know. And I say this having never lived in these areas. It's entirely possible in towns of hundreds that people not only know all of their fellow citizens, but deeply know and understand and appreciate their neighbors and those with whom they live. So it's entirely possible that I could learn something from them about emotional vulnerability. And that gets to my final idea that I might propose, and that is, for non-rural America, a changing of the lenses on our glasses, if you will that we resolve to see the people who share our country in different, more optimistic ways. What can we learn from their lifestyles and ways of being that we haven't previously integrated into our own? What criticisms might they have of cities or suburban life that, frankly, might hit the nail on the head? Granted, we may not share all of their views, but there's a reason that rural America has existed, even if it's currently struggling. And I think it's worth investigating in a non-patronizing, honest, open way what wisdom that lifestyle might hold, or at the very least, might have held prior to its current difficulties. And Gabe, I would turn to you and ask, before we conclude this episode formally, what would you like the audience to consider after listening to this discussion? Well, Kip, I have three concluding thoughts for our listeners. The first is that you and I, and probably many of you listening to this, take digital connectivity 
for granted. You've got Wi-Fi in your homes and apartments, cell phone service when you travel. But in Appalachia and in other parts of rural America, that connectivity is spotty or missing entirely. And as our economy transitions from a manufacturing-based economy to a digital economy, it's more important than ever that people be able to get online. It may seem obvious, but if we're serious about lending a hand to those in more impoverished regions of the U.S., I think we, and by we I mean the government officials we elect to represent our interests, should invest more in bringing Wi-Fi, bringing cell service, and bringing other means of digital growth to Appalachia and other regions. My second thought has circulated in my head since I heard Phil Alston, the UN Special Rapporteur, say it, which is that the recent tax cuts or tax reform by congressional Republicans have exacerbated the wealth and income inequality in this country, and he attributes the downtrodden state of America's poor in large part to the fiscal decisions of the federal government. And so I'd urge you, the listener, to consider how policymakers in your town, in your state, and at the federal level influence the way you live, the way you work, the way you earn money, the way you pay taxes. All of those are thoughts we should be having, because the way we earn money and the way our taxes are governed is not a passive thing. It's something we have a hand in, or could if we so chose. And my final thought, harking back to an earlier part of this discussion about birth control and the high rates of teen pregnancy in West Virginia and Appalachia at large, is that we do have an issue with fragile masculinity that spans regional and cultural boundaries. And that issue is we can't consider it unmanly to use condoms and other forms of birth control because the stakes are high. It takes a lot of work to raise one kid, let alone five, six, seven. And Kip, as men, I think you and I should emphasize this point that with sexuality, like with every other aspect of our lives, we've got to be considerate of our partners and of the other people we engage with, because every action we take has an influence on those around us. To quote the English poet John Donne, no man is an island. And I'll leave it at that. I appreciate the reference and agree with Mr. Dunn's idea. The two things I'd like the audience to consider are, one, the political ramifications that you touched on, Gabe, which frankly are an important element of this discussion, and one that I often find difficult or cumbersome to engage, and yet very important to do so. And I would encourage all of you to think about your political role in the country going forward as you have participated, and perhaps for some younger listeners, how you will participate in coming years. And the second and final point I'd like you to consider is how we transmit ideas to one another. I'm especially glad, Gabe, that you brought up the internet and connectivity, because for a lot of us, perhaps especially in urban areas, it's incredibly easy to access new ideas. I would imagine there are some individuals living in Appalachia who would have never heard of a podcast and might even scoff at the idea of people sitting around talking, editing, and recording it. And there are indeed many uses of one's time to consider. But I do think a lot of the divides among people relate not only to communication, but the ideas behind those expressions. How are we, if at all, seeking new ideas? And what do we do when people aren't sharing new or innovative ideas? Is it possible on some level that rural America is subject to stagnant thought 
that new ideas haven't been introduced, or that the communication highway has broken down to an extent. I think the internet makes for an interesting metaphor there. And of course, Gabe, not only for bringing the topic and sharing it today, but for discussing it eloquently, thoughtfully, and directly, I'd like to thank you. Well, thank you, Kip, for having me on and entertaining this idea for a show. I hope you listeners have found it edifying and that it's given you fodder to examine your own lives, whether you live in Appalachia or in Vermont, as I do, or in another part of the country. And with that reference to any number of people listening, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and Gabe and I don't have nearly as much experience with rural America as some of you might, so we'd really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.